Book Six, Chapter Three, Part Two of On the Education of an Orator by Quintilian, translated by H. E. Butler. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. We may note, therefore, that jests which turn on the meaning of things are at once more pointed and more elegant. In such cases, resemblances between things produce the best effects, more especially if we refer to something of an inferior or more trivial nature as in the jests of which our forefathers were so fond when they called Lentulus Spinther and Scipio Serapio. But such jests may be drawn not merely from the names of men, but from animals as well. For example, when I was a boy, Junius Bassus, one of the wittiest of men, was nicknamed the White Ass, and Sarmentus compared Messius Cicerus to a wild horse. The comparison may also be drawn from inanimate objects, for example, Publius Blasius called a certain Julius, who was dark, lean, and bent, the iron buckle. This method of raising a laugh is much in vogue today. Such resemblances may be put to the service of wit, either openly or elusively. Of the latter type is the remark of Augustus, made to a soldier who showed signs of timidity in presenting a petition. Don't hold it out as if you were giving a penny to an elephant. Some of these jests turn on similarity of meaning. Of this kind was the witticism uttered by Vatinius when he was prosecuted by Calvus. Vatinius was wiping his forehead with a white handkerchief, and his accuser called attention to the unseemliness of the act. Whereupon Vatinius replied, Though I am on my trial, I go on eating white bread all the same. Still more ingenious is the application of one thing to another, on the ground of some resemblance, that is to say, the adaptation to one thing of a circumstance which usually applies to something else, a type of jest which we may regard as being an ingenious form of fiction. For example, when ivory models of captured towns were carried in Caesar's triumphal procession, and a few days later wooden models of the same kind were carried at the triumph of Fabius Maximus, Chrysippus remarked, that the latter were the cases for Caesar's ivory towns. And Peto said of a heavy-armed gladiator who was pursuing another armed with a net and failed to strike him. He wants to catch him alive. Resemblance and ambiguity may be used in conjunction. Galba, for example, said to a man who stood very much at his ease when playing ball, you stand as if you were one of Caesar's candidates. The ambiguity lies in the word stand, while the indifference shown by the player supplies the resemblance. I need say no more on this form of humor, but the practice of combining different types of jest is very common, and those are best which are of this composite character. Thus, a Roman knight was once drinking at the games, and Augustus sent him the following message, If I want to dine, I go home. To which the other replied, Yes, but you are not afraid of losing your seat. Contraries fight rise to more than one kind of jest. For instance, the following jests made by Augustus and Galba differ in form. Augustus was engaged in dismissing an officer with dishonor from his service. The officer kept interrupting him with entreaties and said, What shall I say to my father? Augustus replied, Tell him that I fell under your displeasure. Galba, when a friend asked him for the loan of a cloak, said, I cannot lend it to you, as I am going to stay at home. 
the point being that the rain was pouring through the roof of his garret at the time. I will add a third example, although, out of respect to its author, I withhold his name. You are more lustful than a new nook, where we are surprised by the appearance of a word which is the very opposite of what we should have expected. Under the same heading, although it is quite different from any of the preceding, we must place the remark made by Marcus Vestinus when it was reported to him that a certain man was dead. Some day then he will cease to stink, was his reply. But I shall overload this book with illustrations, and turn it into a common jest book, if I continue to quote each jest that was made by our forefathers. All forms of argument afford equal opportunity for jests. Augustus, for example, employed definition when he said of two ballet dancers who were engaged in a contest, turn and turn about, as to who could make the most exquisite gestures, that one was a dancer, and the other merely interrupted the dancing. Galba, on the other hand, made use of partition when he replied to a friend who asked him for a cloak. It is not raining, and you don't need it. If it does rain, I shall wear it myself. Similar material for jests is supplied by genus, species, property, difference, conjugates, adjuncts, antecedents, consequence, contraries, causes, effects, and comparisons of things greater, equal, or less, as it is also by all forms of trope. Are not a large number of jests made by means of hyperbole? Take for instance Cicero's remark about a man who was remarkable for his height, he bumped his head against the Fabian arch. Or the remark made by Publius Oppius about the family of the Lentuli to the effect that since the children were always smaller than their parents, the race would perish by propagation. Again, what of irony? Is not even the most severe form of irony a kind of jest? Offer made a witty use of it when he replied to Didius Gallus, who, after making the utmost efforts to secure a provincial government, complained on receiving the appointment that he had been forced into accepting. Well, then, do something for your country's sake. Cicero also employed metaphor to serve his jest, when, on receiving a report of uncertain authorship to the effect that Vatinius was dead, he remarked, Well, for the meantime, I shall make use of the interest. He also employed allegory in the witticism that he was fond of making about Marcus Celius, who was better at bringing charges than at defending his client against them, to the effect that he had a good right hand but a weak left. As an example of the use of emphasis, I may quote the jest of Aulus Villius that Tusius was killed by his sword falling upon him. Figures of thought, which the Greeks call schemata dianoias, may be similarly employed, and some writers have classified jests under their various headings. For we ask questions, express doubts, make assertions, threaten, wish, and speak in pity or in anger, and everything is laughable that is obviously a pretense. It is easy to make fun of folly, for folly is laughable in itself, but we may improve such jests by adding something of our own. Titius Maximus put a foolish question to Campatius, who was leaving the theatre, when he asked him if he had been watching the play. No, replied Campatius, I was playing ball in the stalls, whereby he made the question seem even more foolish than it actually was. Refutation consists in denying, rebutting, 
defending, or making light of a charge, and each of these affords scope for humor. Many is curious, for example, showed humor in the way in which he denied a charge that had been brought against him. His accuser had produced a canvas, in every scene of which he was depicted either as naked and in prison, or as being restored to freedom by his friends, paying off his gambling debts. His only comment was, did I never win then? Sometimes we rebut a charge openly, as Cicero did when he refuted the extravagant lies of Vivius Curius about his age. Well then, he remarked, in the days when you and I used to practice declamation together, you were not even born. At other times, we may rebut it by pretending to agree. Cicero, for example, when Fabia, the wife of Dolabella, asserted that her age was thirty, remarked, That is true, for I have heard it for the last twenty years. Sometimes, too, it is effective to add something more biting in place of the charge which is denied, as was done by Junius Bassus when Domitia, the wife of Passienus, complained that, by way of accusing her of meanness, he had alleged that she even sold old shoes. No, he replied, I never said anything of the sort. I said you bought them. A witty travesty of defense was once produced by a Roman knight who was charged by Augustus with having squandered his patrimony. I thought it was my own, he answered. As regards making light of a charge, there are two ways in which this may be done. We may throw cold water on the excessive boasts of our opponent, as was done by Gaius Caesar when Pomponius displayed a wound in his face, which he had received in the rebellion of Sulpicius, and which he boasted he had received while fighting for Caesar. You should never look round, he retorted, when you are running away. Or we may do the same with some charge that is brought against us, as was done by Cicero when he remarked to those who reproached him for marrying Publilia, a young unwedded girl, when he was already over sixty. Well, she will be a woman tomorrow. Some style this type of jest consequent, and, on the ground that both jests seem to follow so naturally and inevitably, class it with the jest which Cicero leveled against Curio, who always began his speeches by asking indulgence for his youth. You will find your exordium easier every day, he said. Another method of making light of a statement is to suggest a reason. Cicero employed this method against Vatinius. The latter was lame, and wishing to make it seem that his health was improved, said that he could now walk as much as two miles. Yes, said Cicero, for the days are longer. Again, Augustus, when the inhabitants of Terraco reported that a palm had sprung up on the altar dedicated to him, replied, That shows how often you kindle fire upon it. Cassius Severus showed his wit by transferring a charge made against him to a different quarter. For, when he was reproached by the praetor on the ground that his advocates had insulted Lucius Varus, an Epicurean and a friend of Caesar, he replied, I do not know who they were who insulted him. I suppose they were Stoics. Of retorts, there are a number of forms, the wittiest being that which is helped out by a certain verbal similarity, as in the retort made by Trachalus to Suelius. The latter had said, If that is the case, you go into exile. To which Trachalus replied, And if it is not the case, you go back into exile. 
Cassius Severus baffled an opponent, who reproached him with the fact that Proculeius had forbidden him to enter his house by replying, Do I ever go there? But one jest may also be defeated by another, for example, Augustus of blessed memory, when the Gauls gave him a golden necklet weighing a hundred pounds, and Dolabella, speaking in jest, but with an eye to the success of his jest, said, General, give me your necklet, replied, I had rather give you the crown of oak leaves. So, too, one lie may be defeated by another. Galba, for instance, when someone told him that he once bought a lamprey five feet long for half a denarius in Sicily, replied, There's nothing extraordinary in that, for they grow to such a length in those seas that the fishermen tie them round their waists in the air of ropes. Then there is the opposite of denial, namely a feigned confession, which likewise may show no small wit. Thus offer, when pleading against a freedman of Claudius Caesar, and when another freedman called out from the opposite side of the court, You are always speaking against Caesar's freedman, replied. Yes, but I make precious little headway. A similar trick is not to deny a charge, though it is obviously false, and affords good opportunity for an excellent reply. For example, when Philippus said to Catullus, Why do you bark so? The latter replied, I see a thief. To make jokes against oneself is scarcely fit for any, save professed buffoons, and is strongly to be disapproved in an orator. This form of jest has precisely the same varieties as those which we make against others, and therefore I pass it by, although it is not infrequently employed. On the other hand, scurrilous or brutal jests, although they may raise a laugh, are quite unworthy of a gentleman. I remember a jest of this kind being made by a certain man against an inferior who had spoken with some freedom against him. I will smack your head and bring an action against you for having such a hard school. In such cases, it is difficult to say whether the audience should laugh or be angry. There remains the prettiest of all forms of humor, namely the jest which depends for success on deceiving anticipations, or taking another's words in a sense other than he intended. The unexpected element may be employed by the attacking party, as in the example cited by Cicero. What does this man lack save wealth and virtue? Or in the remark of Offer, for pleading causes he is most admirably dressed. Or it may be employed to meet a statement made by another, as it was by Cicero on hearing a false report on Vatinius's death. He had met one of the latter's freedmen and asked him, Is all well? The freedman answered, All is well. To which Cicero replied, Is he dead then? But the loudest laughter of all is produced by simulation and dissimulation, proceedings which differ but little and are almost identical, but whereas simulation implies the pretense of having a certain opinion of one's own, dissimulation consists in feigning that one does not understand someone else's meaning. Offer employed simulation when his opponents, in a certain case, kept saying that Salsina, who was an influential lady, knew all about the facts, and he, pretending to believe that she was a man, said, Who is he? Cicero, on the other hand, 
employed dissimulation when Sextus Annalis gave evidence damaging to the client whom he was defending, and the accuser kept pressing him with the question. Tell me, Marcus Tullius, what have you to say about Sextus Annalis? To which he replied by beginning to recite the sixth book of the Annals of Aeneas, which commences with the line, Who may the causes of vast war unfold? This kind of jest finds its most frequent opportunity in ambiguity, as, for example, when Caselius, on being consulted by a client who said, I wish to divide my ship, replied, You will lose it then. But there are also other ways of distorting the meaning. We may, for instance, give a serious statement a comparatively trivial sense, like the man who, when asked what he thought of a man who had been caught in the act of adultery, replied that he had been too slow in his movements. Of a similar nature are jests whose point lies in insinuation. Such was the reply which Cicero quotes as given to the man who complained that his wife had hung herself on a fig tree. I wish, said someone, you would give me a slip of that tree to plant. For there the meaning is obvious, though it is not expressed in so many words. Indeed, the essence of all wit lies in the distortion of the true and natural meaning of words. A perfect instance of this is when we misrepresent our own or another's opinions, or assert some impossibility. Juba misrepresented another man's opinion when he replied to one who complained of being bespattered by his horse. What, do you think I'm a centaur? Gaius Cassius misrepresented his own when he said to a soldier whom he saw hurrying into battle without his sword. Shoe yourself a handy man with your fists, comrade. So too did Galba, when served some fish that had been partially eaten the day before and had been placed on the table with the uneaten sides turned uppermost. We must lose no time, he said, for there are people under the table at work on the other side. Lastly, there is the jibe that Cicero made against Curius, which I have already cited, for it was clearly impossible that he should be still unborn at a time when he was already declaiming. There is also a form of misrepresentation which has its basis in irony, of which a saying of Gaius Caesar will provide an example. A witness asserted that the accused attempted to wound him in the thighs, and, although it would have been easy to ask him why he attacked that portion of his body above all others, he merely remarked, What else could he have done when you had a helmet and breastplate? Best of all is it when pretense is met by pretense, as was done in the following instance by Domitius Offer. He had made his will long ago, and one of his more recent friends, in the hopes of securing a legacy if he could persuade him to change it, produced a fictitious story, and asked him whether he should advise a senior centurion who, being an old man, had already made his will to revise it, to which Offer replied, Don't do it, you will offend him. But the most agreeable of all jests are to which are good-humored and easily digested. Take another example from Offer. Noting that an ungrateful client avoided him in the forum, he sent his servant to him to say, I hope you are obliged to me for not having seen you. Again, when his steward, being unable to account for certain sums of money, kept saying, I have not eaten it. I live on bread and water, he replied. Master Sparrow, pay what you owe. 
such jests the Greeks style hypotoetos, or adapted to character. It is a pleasant form of jest to reproach a person with less than would be possible, as Offer did when, in answer to a candidate who said, I have always shown my respect for your family, he replied, although he might easily have denied the statement. You are right, it is quite true. Sometimes it may be a good joke to speak of oneself, while one may often raise a laugh by reproaching a person to his face with things that it would have been merely bad-mannered to bring up against him behind his back. Of this kind was the remark made by Augustus, when a soldier was making some unreasonable request, and Marcianus, whom he suspected of intending to make some no less unfair request, turned up at the same moment. I will no more grant your request, comrade, than I will that which Marcianus is just going to make. Apt quotation of verse may add to the effect of the wit. The lines may be quoted in their entirety without alteration, which is so easy a task that Ovid composed an entire book against bad poets out of lines taken from the quatrains of Masser. Such a procedure is rendered specially attractive if it be seasoned by a spice of ambiguity, as in the line which Cicero quoted against Larcius, a shrewd and cunning fellow who was suspected of unfair dealing in a certain case. Had not Ulysses Larcius intervened. Or, the words may be slightly altered, as in the line quoted against the senator, who, although he had always, in private times, been regarded as an utter fool, was, after inheriting an estate, asked to speak first on a motion. What men call wisdom is a legacy, where legacy is substituted for the original faculty. Or again, we may invent verses resembling well-known lines, a trick-styled parody by the Greeks. A neat application of proverbs may also be effective, as when one man replies to another, a worthless fellow, who had fallen down and asked to be helped to his feet. Let someone pick you up who does not know you. Or we may show our culture by drawing on legend for a jest, as Cicero did in the trial of Verres, when Hortensius said to him, as he was examining a witness, I do not understand these riddles. You ought to, then, said Cicero, as you have got the sphinx at home. Hortensius had received a bronze sphinx of great value as a present from Verres. Effects of mild absurdity are produced by the simulation of folly, and would indeed themselves be foolish were they not fictitious. Take as an example the remark of the man who, when people wondered why he had bought a stumpy candlestick, said, it will do for lunch. There are also sayings closely resembling absurdities which derive great point from their sheer irrelevance, like the reply of Dolabella's slave, who, on being asked whether his master had advertised a sale of his property, answered, he has sold his house. Sometimes you may get out of a tight corner by giving a humorous explanation of your embarrassment, as the man did who asked a witness, who alleged that he had been wounded by the accused, whether he had any scar to show for it. The witness proceeded to show a huge scar on his thigh, on which he remarked, I wish he had wounded you in the side. A happy use may also be made of insult. Hispo, for example, when the accuser charged him with scandalous crimes, replied, you judge my character by your own. While Fulvius Propinquus, 
when asked by the representative of the emperor whether the documents which he produced were autographs, replied, Yes, sir, and the handwriting is genuine, too. Such I have either learned from others, or discovered from my own experience, to be the commonest sources of humor. But I must repeat that the number of ways in which one may speak wittily are of no less infinite variety than those in which one may speak seriously, for they depend on persons, place, time, and chances, which are numberless. I have, therefore, touched on the topics of humor, that I may not be taxed with having omitted them. But with regard to my remarks on the actual practice and manner of jesting, I venture to assert that they are absolutely indispensable. To these, the Mrs. Marses, who wrote an elaborate treatise on urbanity, adds several types of saying, which are not laughable, but rather elegant sayings with a certain charm and attraction of their own, which are suitable even to speeches of the most serious kind. They are characterized by a certain urbane wit, but not of a kind to raise a laugh. And as a matter of fact, his work was not designed to deal with humor, but with urbane wit, a quality which he regards as peculiar to this city, though it was not till a late period that it was understood in this sense, after the word urbs had come to be accepted as indicating Rome without the addition of any proper noun. He defines it as follows. Urbanity is a certain quality of language compressed into the limits of a brief saying and adapted to delight and move men to every kind of emotion, but specially suitable to resistance or attack, according as the person or circumstances concerned may demand. But this definition, if we accept the quality of brevity, includes all the virtues of oratory. For it is entirely concerned with persons and things to deal with, which, in appropriate language, is nothing more nor less than the task of perfect eloquence. Why he insisted on brevity I do not know, since in the same book he asserts that many speakers have revealed their urbanity in narrative. And, a little later, he gives the following definition, which is, as he says, based on the views expressed by Cato. Urbanity is the characteristic of a man who has produced many good sayings and replies, and who, whether in conversation, in social or convivial gatherings, in public speeches, or under any other circumstances, will speak with humor and appropriateness. If any orator do this, he will undoubtedly succeed in making his audience laugh. But if we accept these definitions, we shall have to allow the title of urbane to anything that is well said. It was natural, therefore, that the author of this definition should classify such sayings under three heads, serious, humorous, and intermediate, since all good sayings may be thus classified. But, in my opinion, there are certain forms of humorous saying that may be regarded as not possessing sufficient urbanity. For, to my thinking, urbanity involves the total absence of all that is incongruous, coarse, unpolished, and exotic, whether in thought, language, voice, or gesture, and resides not so much in isolated sayings as in the whole complexion of our language, just as for the Greeks, Atticism meant that elegance of taste that was peculiar to Athens. However, 
out of respect for the judgment of Marsus, who was a man of the greatest learning, I will add that he divides serious utterances into three classes, the honorific, the derogatory, and the intermediate. As an example of the honorific, he quotes the words uttered by Cicero in the Proligario, with reference to Caesar, you who forget nothing save injuries. The derogatory he illustrates by the words used by Cicero of Pompey and Caesar in a letter to Atticus. I know whom to avoid, but whom to follow I know not. Finally, he illustrates the intermediate, which he calls apothegmatic, as it is, by the passage from Cicero's speech against Catiline, where he says, Death can never be grievous to the brave, nor premature for one who has been consul, nor a calamity to one that is truly wise. All these are admirable sayings, but what special title they have to be called urbane I do not see. If it is not merely, as I think, the whole complexion of our oratory that deserves this title, but if it is to be claimed for individual sayings as well, I should give the name only to those sayings that are of the same general character as humorous sayings, without actually being humorous. I will give an illustration of what I mean. It was said of Asinius Pollio, who had equal gifts for being grave or gay, that he was a man for all hours, and of a pleader who was a fluent speaker extempore, that his ability was all in ready money. Of the same kind, too, was the remark recorded by Marsus, as having been made by Pompey to Cicero, when the latter expressed distrust of his party. Go over to Caesar, and you will be afraid of me. Had this last remark been uttered on a less serious subject, and with less serious purpose, or had it not been uttered by Pompey himself, we might have counted it among examples of humor. I may also add the words used by Cicero in a letter to Cerelia to explain why he endured the supremacy of Caesar so patiently. These ills must either be endured with the courage of Cato or the stomach of Cicero, for here again the word stomach has a spice of humor in it. I felt that I ought not to conceal my feelings on this point. If I am wrong in my views, I shall not, at any rate, lead my readers astray since I have stated the opposite view as well, which they are at a liberty to adopt if they prefer it. End of chapter 3